0: The whiz kids had won it, Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn, so down on the corner the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. All right, everybody,
1: welcome on back to Baseball History 101. As always, I am Patrick DeVault, and with me is my esteemed colleague, Matthew Carter. Hello. On today's episode, we are going to talk about um, the newest Hall of Fame class, which will be inducted in 2022. But we want to start off with a brief history of the Hall of Fame before we get into the uh, the uh, seven guys that are getting in. The guys getting in are going to be Jim Cat, Tony Olivia, Bud Fowler, Gil Hodges, Minnie Minoso, Buck O'Neill, and Big Poppy David Ortiz. Mm-hmm. And a lot of you have probably never even heard of a lot of these guys because they were all born in the 20s and 30s.
2: With the exception of Bud uh, Fowler. And yeah, he was a little bit later.
1: He was yeah. in the 1800s. Earlier. Earlier, the 1800s. yeah. Um, so, we'll start with a, a brief history of the Hall of Fame, which this might be an episode later on, but it was established in more in depth. But it was established in 1939 by a guy named Stephen Carlton Clark, and he was the heir to the Singer sewing machine fortune. And if you're like me, um, my mom owns a Singer sewing machine. I'm sure your mom also might, Matt, you mm-hmm. know? It's one of those things that middle-aged white ladies the sewing machine brain is Singer. Yep. If you own one. That would be And his, his goal was to bring the tourists to a city hurt by the Great Depression, which hurt the tourist trade, and um, and Prohibition, which devastated the local hops industry. That makes sense, that's why, um, I'm a gang.
2: Yep. i That's brewery
1: I carry, I, for those of y'all that don't know, I uh, I work for a beer distributor that's a brewery we carry out of Cooperstown. Mm-hmm. That makes sense that they're there. Um, but um, he, he constructed the Hall of Fame's building, and it was dedicated on June 12th of 1939. Um, and his granddaughter, Jane Forbes Clark, who Matthew probably has met. Oh, yes. Is the current chairman of the Board of Directors. Mm-hmm. Um and the erroneous claim that Civil War hero Abner Doubleday invented baseball in Coopertown? Cooperstown. 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 <laughs> I can't read. <laughs> um, was very inter- instrumental in um, how they marketed the hall because baseball was invented here. Mm-hmm. The Hall of Fame should be here. And um, in 94, they um, built an expanded library and research facility, which I'm sure you're also very familiar with, Matthew. Yep. Um, a guy named Dale Petrosky became the organization's president in 1999. And in 2002, he launched um, Baseball is America, a traveling exhibit that toured 10 American museums over six years.
2: There's they also, also
1: sponsor educational uh, programming. and.
2: There's also a book that they did called Baseball is America, which is published by National Geographic, and I own it, which is about the uh, exhibit. I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah. <laughs> um,
1: they sponsor educational programming On the internet, which Matthew's a part of, with his uh, shortstop articles, and he um, just dropped a good one today, and go back and look at all of them. Yep. Um, And I remember being a kid, the tournament you wanted to go play in in travel ball was the Cooperstown uh, Dreams Park Tournament. Yep. You got to go to the Hall of Fame, you got your own jerseys from Cooperstown, and you got a ring if you want it.
2: Yeah, and those tournaments, like they were going on like every week, like, you know, my first week there, they had a team from Hoover and a team from Vestavia up there. I'm like, well, you gotta be kidding me, man. Or at least one Birmingham era team that had Hoover and Vestavia kids on it. But I was like, wow. <laughs> That's
1: the one tournament playing travel ball I never got the chance to um, actually go participate in.
2: Yeah. What were we doing, man? Well, what, what were the Hall? I, I wasn't on a travel ball team, but like, what were the travel ball people doing? Playing other tournaments, I guess. They're like, we don't even go to Cooperstown.
1: Well, you got you to gotta think about, it. like, there was a team I played on where just the jerseys and uniforms and stuff were a few hundred bucks, because we had four different ones, because you're going and playing four or five-day tournaments. Yeah. And we played pretty much everywhere over the Southeast, but... Yeah. I, I was never on a team after that one, but I know a lot of friends. I got a couple friends that have won tournaments up there.
2: Yeah. One of my in, one of my fellow interns also played in that tournament when he was a kid, so... So, that was cool. Yeah, um...
1: And I guess that's a brief history of starting a Hall of Fame. And y'all can figure out the rest of it.
2: Well, what about the voting? Let's talk about, like, you know, voting. Because that's that's people are going to wonder, why, how do these people get in the Hall of Fame?
1: Well, currently, it's the Baseball Writers Association of America. Yep. Which I have a problem with. Because yep. a lot of these old head baseball writers are very hung up on, oh, nobody should be inducted unanimously. Or, oh, you... People think you did steroids, even though you never failed a test. But currently, it's the baseball writers. Um, how did that start
2: off, Matt? How did it start it off? Was always baseball writers? I think it was always baseball writers ever since 1936, the first Dutch in class. They all got together in '36 and said, we're going to start this Hall of Fame. And they voted the t- first five, Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth, Honus Wagner, Christy Mathewson, and Walter Johnson. So
1: the obvious stuff.
2: Yeah, so ever since thirty six has always been the Baseball Writers Association of America, so, but then I wish I could remember when, but then like after a while, we had the Veterans Committee start, right? And this and the Veterans Committees were actually made up of Hall of Fame players as well as you know other people, but like baseball players who played and in, in, also were Hall of Fame members made up the Veterans Committee, and. They would like pick, you know, they would pick guys who got left off the baseball writers. You know, like if the baseball writers didn't think they were that good and they lost their eligibility of ten years or however long you can be on the list, then the Veterans Committee can take a second look at you. Now, in the sixties and seventies, the Veterans Committee caught some heat for this because it was led by Frankie Fresh and Bill Terry two Hall of Famers who were great players and, you know, maybe not first ballot guys, but, like, you know, still on the the list. They, they made it before their 10 years was up. They
1: got in, like, year six, seven kind of
2: guys. Yeah. These guys, especially Fresh, were on a mission to get some of their fellow teammates on the Giants, and then, of course, Fresh later played for the Cardinals, to get their fellow Giants and, former Giants and uh, Cardinals uh, teammates in the Hall of Fame. So they got some guys in there that Lisa Frisch's argument was their defense was good. So they got guys like, uh, you know, Chick Hafe or Jesse Haynes and Dave Bancroft and guys like that who were good players and they won championships for the Giants and Cardinals, but it's very questionable Hall of Fame stats compared to Frisch and Terry.
1: So for a lack of a better term, it was a little bit of a good old boy system.
2: I would say so, yeah. Because, you know, if you play... If you were, you know, in the '60s and '70s, if you were on a team with Fresh or Terry in the '20s and '30s, you had a pretty good chance of getting in the Hall of Fame because they would go for you, man, because they they want their boys in, you know. So, but they caught some flack for that, but well, as they
1: sh- as they should have,
2: yeah, and they didn't, you know. Fresh or Terry didn't care.
1: <laughs> well, a, we're already in the Hall of Fame. B, we're making money. Yeah. Doing baseball.
2: And then in the 70s, you started getting the committee to get Negro Leaguers in. Right? And they got Satchel Mm Paige and He was the first, the first player inducted for his Negro League statistics in 1971. And initially, they were going to put the Negro Leaguers in a separate wing from the, the main Hall of Fame plaque gallery, which that caught a lot of flack. This was
1: 1971?
2: Yeah, it was 71. So
1: this is on the tail end of all of the racial
2: movement, yeah. So, yeah, and that caught a lot of flack, and B- Bowie Coon as it should have, in my opinion. Yeah, same. And Bowie Coon backtracks, like, okay, now he's going to have a plaque, and it's going to be in the Hall of Fame plaque gallery of everybody else, and that's how it should be.
1: I'm okay with the steroid arrow wing. I'm not okay with a uh, segregation wing. <laughs>
2: right. You can have an exhibit on the on the on the Negro leagues, but if you're going to induct a Negro league player, they got to be in there with everybody in the Hall of Fame plaque gallery. You know, that's an honor. So, and then, you know, the Hall of Fame, you know, they elect a lot of Negro leaguers from the 70s and the 80s, and even to the 90s and 2000s, and even now, this, this induction, which we're going to get into, but yeah, and now the Veterans Committee is, like, divided up in different committees, like the Modern Era Committee, the early, the Golden Age Committee, and I, it's, I just still call it the Veterans Committee, I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> well, collectively they are, even though they have their own subsections, I feel like.
2: Yeah. But basically, you know, oh, and on the list, like, you know, on the initial list, when you're eligible for Hall of Fame election, you got to get 75% of the vote from the writers to get inducted. That's the you main, have
1: 10 years to accomplish that. Right.
2: You got 10 years to get 75% of the vote to accomplish what, Barry, that.
1: What, Barry Bonds ended up with like
2: 68 this year? 67, 66, I don't like Clemens like 65%. Pete Rose, Clemens, Barry
1: Bonds. I have a problem with all three of those people not being enshrined.
2: Yeah, well, I mean...
1: I mean, I guess Peter Rose kind of did it to himself. Yeah. As did the other two, but...
2: But yeah, um, uh, and um, what was I going to say? Shoot, I don't know. But yeah, you, if you don't get the 75% after your 10 years, then your fate is to the one of the many veterans committees that we have now. Right, and they're up to you, and they're up to those guys, you know, and you know, like I remember 2019, Harold Baines got in because Tony La Russa, who managed the White Sox in the '80s when Baines was on the team, campaigned really hard in the vet, or in the their version of the Veterans Committee to get him in, and like Tony La Russa got in a heated discussion with Chris Mad Dog Russo about it after he got after he after Baines got elected to the Hall of Fame. They got a, like heated discussion about it, <laughs> and, his, and man, Tony I've, defended his man.
1: I love to hate Mad Dog Russo.
2: He's just he's something
0: else.
1: He man. knows what he's talking about, but he's kind of like fine with college football. Yeah, he knows how to get those viewings, those ratings, and the page clicks, and he knows how to make money being polarizing. Right.
2: That's why he has his own uh, serious channel. He seems to be successful without Mike Francesa. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so I mean, that's all I got to add about the Hall of Fame. Do you have anything else?
1: I'm just gonna give a brief rundown. Um, as of January 2022, 340 people have been elected
2: to the Hall of Fame. Out of the 20,000 players who have played Major League Baseball, and yes. the countless umpires and managers and executives, yes. only 340. That's not a lot <laughs> um, compared to like the NFL, who seems like to get like seven, eight guys every year, you know, in the Hall of Fame.
1: Yep, so there's 340 overall, 239 of which were major league ball players.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: 39 were Negro League ball players or executives. 23 managers, 10 umpires. Big country Joe West will be in there in 10 years. I bet he would. I would doubt it. Even though it. I don't think he's a great umpire, but so, that's, he, you, he had a hell of a career, so he's obviously good enough to stay there. Yeah. Um, and, uh, 36 pioneers. I'm not sure exactly what that means, Matthew.
2: Oh, i like, like Alexander Cartwright kind of guys like in the 1840s, like early, early, early. Okay. Uh, baseball like them or and the Wright brothers. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha.
1: Um, so there's 36 pioneers, executives and organizers, which would be, I guess, pioneers and GMs, people like that. Yeah. And then, um, 118 members of the hall of fame have been
2: inducted posthumously. Posthumously. Like, after they died. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... It, we pronounce that word different. are Sometimes they <laughs> can't help that. Like, the Roberto Clemente case, where, you know, he died in a plane right. crash. And they just, they waived the rules for him. They let him in, like, that, that year.
1: And of the 39 Negro League members, um, 31 of them were posthumously allowed in, because I guess at the time, when that was a thing, compared to when it was socially a norm...
2: Well, that in two thousand six, like they inducted seventeen Negro League players and executives, and none of them were alive. So, you know, part of that thirty one of the thirty nine is from two thousand six. So, what can you do? You know,
1: um, we could almost make an episode on this next fact I'm about to say. How many woman members are there out of the Baseball Hall of Fame?
2: Just one, Effa Manley. Yep, we talked about her in the last episode. Yeah, very briefly. briefly. Yeah,
1: um, yeah, she's. She's the executive the only, of the New York New Eagles in the uh, Negro Leagues with her husband Abe, and yep. she's the only woman in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Yep. So I think that kind of covers a brief history of the Baseball Hall of Fame. That might be an episode on its own. We can dive deep into that, and Matthew is more the guy to talk about that than I am. Yeah, we could do that. As, he's spent time there.
2: We could do that as well as make an episode about my time in the Hall. But you know, again, oh, we this, can do a
1: combination episode of that. Yeah, we
2: could do like combination. I don't know if it's gonna be. That may get two hours, but <laughs> if, if anyone wants to do two hours about me in the Hall of Fame, that's fine, but anyway.
1: Um, but for today, we're going to talk about the um, class of 2022, which will be inducted um, this com- coming up later this year. Mm-hmm. Um, Jim Cat, Tony Oliva, Bud Fowler, Gil Hodges, Minnie Minoso, Buck O'Neill, and Big Poppy David Ortiz, which is the one most of y'all are going to be most familiar with. For sure. Yeah. Um, and I guess we decided we're going to do it in chronological order based on their date of birth. And the first guy on that order would be a man named, by the name of Bud Fowler. Do I like start it off, Matthew?
2: Yes. So Bud Fowler was born in 1858 in Fort Plains, New York. And the thing is, his real name was not Bud Fowler. It was, he was, uh, I want to say his gene. Hold on a double second. It was John W. Jackson, Jr., his dad was John W. Jackson Sr. So now you think, where in the world did he get the name Bud Fowler? Well, you have to understand, even in those days and even into the 20th century, players changed their real name for various reasons. Most of the time, they would change it for they want to keep their college eligibility, so they played under a pseudonym, you know, an assumed name, you know, to try to keep their and that college. That
1: seems in- to kind of be a thing, especially for Latin guys.
2: Yeah, like Latin guys for sure. Like, uh, oh, there was that.
1: Like Pujols might be older than he really is.
2: Yeah, or like Fausto Carmona, he was somebody else, or maybe, or maybe that was his real name. It was some for the Indians like a few years back.
1: Or Julio Franco, nobody even knew how old he was, you know. Like <laughs> yeah, for Cecil Page, he was, was forty eight playing pro ball. I think he's still playing ball, if I'm not mistaken. But,
2: yeah, well, he's not in, in not in the majors, you know.
1: <laughs> no, no, but I think he's still playing like semi pro.
2: Yeah. So yeah, he was John W. Jackson.
1: Yeah, and he got his debut with the. Uh, team called the Page Fence Giants um, in Adrian, Michigan. Yep. Um, sponsored by the uh, Page Woven Wire Fence Company. I guess they made a uh, cow fence, you know? And
2: Yeah, that was one of the first well-known all-black teams, that, all-black baseball teams, you know, for sure. And the Lansing Lugnuts this year, I saw, I think yesterday, a couple days ago, Lansing Lugnuts, minor league, single-A team in whatever the league is now, they're going to wear, like, retro Patriots Giants uniforms for a game. It's awesome. So that's cool. Yeah. But, um... So, out of all... So, Bud Fowler, of all the Hall of Famers, Bud Fowler actually lived in Cooperstown, New York for a time. Like, after he was born, the, like, he was a year old. His family moved to Cooperstown from Fort Plains, New York. And, um... That's where he learned how to play the game. And... Um,
1: Here's something wild about him. He was born in
2: 1858.
1: hmm And he made
2: his debut in 1895. So he was
1: like... He was in his late 30s. Late 30s, early 40s, before he made it there. Yeah. And that's not, that's not the norm now. And he only played for three years.
2: Right. It's just... But he played for, like, different teams. So, like, okay. He played amateur ball for a few years, but his first year of prominence in the game was in 1878, age 20. And now I'm getting this off the society his is by on, on SABR's website. Uh, by this time, Jackson was calling himself Fowler. Like, you know, he was referring to himself as Fowler. And would be known as such throughout his entire baseball career. The reason for the name change is unclear. The main motives why a ball player played under a assumed name are to avoid trouble with his parents, to shorten a long name, which Jackson's not, you know. Jackson's not really a long name. To avoid conflict with college eligibility, to skirt the reserve clause, which in 1878 there wasn't, I don't think there was a reserve clause. Wait. Actually, there was a reserve clause in 1878. I just forgot about that. Hell, he
1: might have just been hiding from taxes.
2: It could be that too. Or to avoid replications for past misdeeds inside baseball or out. Only one of these that makes sense for him would be family interference. In Fowler's case, this does have some credence. He came from a milk family, but chose a profession that was unique to his circumstances. There were no professional black ball players when he entered the business. His, his devotion to the game and belief in making a career out of it surely must have conflicted with the notions his parents had, had of his potential in the sport. As far as his name Fowler goes, there were several Fowler's families in Cooperstown, including a prominent businessman, but why he chose the name is left superstition. superstition. So... He changed his name, and also the way he called himself Bud is because, I think it was on the Wikipedia, he called everybody Bud. He was kind of like um, Bobo Newsome. Like it's he like could,
1: me at work, man. I can't remember your name. What's up, bud? What's up, pal? Yeah, yeah it's like... See tomorrow, buddy. Yeah.
2: Hey, kind of <laughs> like Bobo Newsome. He would call people Bobo, he would call himself Bobo, or like Babe Roof would call people Kid, you know, if he couldn't remember he like, hi, a Kid, you know. That's just something he called himself, he just called everybody. He's like, hey, bud, how's it going, bud? You know, what's up, bud? You know, he was just a, he was an interesting man in that sense. But yeah, I mean, he played baseball, like, from his early days and even in his 20s. But, like, you know, when it comes to prof- really professional, his first real team was the Page Fence Giants mm-hmm. in the 1890s.
1: He, had, um, in 1895 was May's debut, but he had played before that on an all-white professional league. hmm Or on an all-white professional team um, out of Newcastle, Pennsylvania when he was 14. hmm And he played for another team in, for one game in 87 when he was 19. And then in 1978, he pitched one game for the Picks Nine who defeated the Boston Red cops who were the champions of the uh, NL in 1877. Mm-hmm. And he pitched a little bit for uh, the Chelsea team and then finished that Super Bowl stretcher club. So he just bounced around. You need me to throw a game? I got you a game kind of deal is what it, yeah.
2: it, it reads as. I mean, it's just similar later on to various Negro leaguers who, unless you were Buck Leonard who played for the Homestead Grace throughout his whole career, you played for a lot of teams. Like the the, mm-hmm. the contracts were fluid back then. You know, most people either like... sign
1: like a game contract and then bouncing on to the next game. Yeah. Two kinds of stuff.
2: So, I mean, this is like a precursor to future Negro League players just going around all over the place, playing for, you know, money or whatever, you know. Got
1: money, will play.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's just what they, just what people did, you know. Um, but...
1: I mean, I, um, he wound up playing on a team in... If I butcher this pronunciation, I apologize. Kiwak, Iowa? Keo.
2: K- Cook maybe?
1: Yeah, um, I'm sorry if we butcher that. but um,
2: If anybody is from Keokuk, Iowa, please email us at baseball, baseballhis101 at gmail.com to tell us what the pronunciation is. Thank you.
1: Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, he, he played there for a little while, and he was the most popular player on the team. Um, they described him as a good ball player, hard worker, and a genius on the field, intelligent, gentlemanly in his conduct, and deserving of the good opinion entertained for him by baseball admirers here. And um, the reserve cause was a problem with him, which you just mentioned yep. uh, briefly earlier. And the contractual mechanism that allowed teams to hold on to players for their entire career, which I think is kind of part of what's going on with baseball right now also. Um, yeah. But um, when ball, and I quote, Fowler stated, when a ball player signs a league contract, they can do anything with him under his provisions. Provisions, Yeah. Butt hanging.
2: <laughs> oh, man.
1: And um, luckily for him, he didn't get hanged. The Western League fought that season due to uh, financial reasons. Yeah. And um, leading Kuak- Keokukur. I apologize if you're from there. Um, without a league and he was released and then um, he went and played in Pueblo, Colorado mm-hmm. in 86 he played in Kansas and they won the pennant behind his 309 average and he led the league in triples in yep. 87 he moved to Binghamton, New York back closer to home mm-hmm. and he played on a team there but then racial tensions and uh, his teammates refused to continue playing with him
2: that's that's awful I'm willing to
1: bet they had an um, African American man showing them up and they didn't like it. That's probably it. That time period, that time period in America.
2: I mean, that's why they got rid of Moses Fleetwood Walker in the majors. So,
1: and the next year he went to Terre Haute, Indiana, and he played um, in eighty-eight. Remember, he in eighteen ninety. I guess he missed a year in eighteen ninety. He was played for three different teams as the uh, Illinois Iowa League franchise relocated twice mm-hmm. from Sterling. To Galesburg to Burlington. In eighteen ninety two he played for Kearney, Nebraska in the Nebraska State League. So he was bouncing around in all these minor leagues.
2: Yeah. Fun fact my UNA's baseball coach is from Nebraska, or at least he got his degree at Nebraska Kearney. So that's
1: Who's that coach now?
2: Mike Keen. K E E H N. That's right. Yeah, he's still there. Um hopefully they have a good season. But anyway. Yeah, he's been there for a minute, hasn't he? Yeah, he's been there since the year before I started UNA, two thousand nine. Like the two thousand nine season, and he's been he was the uh, assistant coach there for many years under Mike Lane, and then Mike Lane retired, and then King got the job. So
1: I can't remember if I threw that one hitter against Lane or King, but I threw a one hitter against UNA, and that's my best day ever. Nice. Um. But yeah, according to um, James A. Riley, a baseball historian he uh, played 10 seasons of organized baseball, a record for an African-American at that time. Until um, that record got broken by Jackie Robinson in his last season with the Brooklyn Doctors.
2: Yeah, 56. Yeah.
1: And then on um, the legacy, he died in Frankfurt, New York on um, in 1913. He had illness and poverty. And it was covered by the national media, and his grave is unmarked.
2: Yeah, well, it wasn't marked until the Society of American Baseball Research placed a memorial on his grave to memorize his success in 1987. And then Cooperstown declared, in 2013, they declared, on April 20th, 2013, they declared Bud Fowler Day and they dedicated a plaque and presented an exhibit with his honor at Doubleday Field. And um, they named a street after him called Fowler Way. So that's really cool. So, yeah, he's remembered in Cooperstown. I mean, I knew of him vaguely. But, again, you know, my my expertise is more 20th and 21st century baseball. Anything 19th century, including African-American 19th century baseball, is just foreign to me to an extent. Right.
1: <laughs> the one thing we didn't cover that I really enjoyed is that um, the Society for American Baseball Research, Sabre saber Metrics, mm-hmm. for all of those of y'all at um, home, they're all connected. Um in 2020, they put him as the 19th century baseball legend that was like, most overlooked. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's an honor from a statistical society. Yep. And then on November 5th, 2021, um, he was the of the Final Ten. And then on December 5th of 2021, it was announced that he was going to be elected into the Baseball Hall of Fame. So that's... All he needed was 12 out of 16 votes. And um, I think he got 75% of the 16, which would be 12, so...
2: Yeah, so, obviously, if he if he didn't get that, we wouldn't be talking about him today, so...
1: Yeah, he got 75%, so he got 12 of the 16, which is exactly what he needed.
2: Yeah, so you can say this was long overdue. Um, I'm glad... I was, you know, I was afraid that, after 2006, the Hall of Fame wouldn't consider any more Negro League or pre-Negro League players, but... Um, yeah, they got, John, they got uh, Bud Fowler in, and now I believe we get to talk about our next, uh, unless you have anything else to add about Bud Fowler.
1: Good on that. We're moving on to uh, Mr. Buck O'Neill. Oh, yes. Another posthumous Hall of Fame inductee. Um, he oh. was born in 1911. He was a first baseman and manager in the Negro American League, mm-hmm. mostly with the Monarchs, which most of y'all are going to recognize the Monarchs name. Um, after his playing days, he was a scout and became the first African-American coach in Major League Baseball. And, um, he became a very well-known speaker, motivational speaker, um, did interviews about his time in ball and things like that. Um, he was a big part of establishing the Negro League Baseball Museum in KC. Yep. And, um, and he, was he got big- into the Hall of Fame as an executive, more for his ownership and stewardship of the game than his actually playing career.
2: He was also a scout. He, he scouted for the Cubs and the Royals after his playing days. Um,
1: yeah, he's from Florida?
2: Yep, Car- yeah. yep, Carabelle, Florida, right? Yeah. Yep. He grew up in and, Sarasota.
1: Um, he was actually not allowed to attend high school because of his race. Right. And he be- only had four schools for blacks.
2: Yeah, in, in the state of Florida. <laughs> but yeah, I remember uh, I owned Buck O'Neill's autobiography. I was right on time, which I probably should have brought with me, but and um, he mentions, you know, they were building Sarasota High School in the 20s, or at least, you know, when he was a kid. And Buck O'Neill was really excited. He's like, oh, man, I get to go to Sarasota High School. And then his grandmother said, sit down. You're not going to go That's to Sarasota High this School.
1: works, because it's 19, early 1900s. Right. it's so late 1800s. Jim Crow is around.
2: Jim Crow is alive and well. But, uh yeah,
1: it worked out for him because he got to move to Jacksonville with some relatives and went to college where he finished his degree and got to take some college courses at and Edward Waters College. yeah, yep, exactly.
2: but uh, but as a as a as a positive side uh, positive ending, in 1995, he received an honorary high school diploma from Sarasota High School. Yeah, so you know he got something out of it.
1: Is it this me or is that too little too late?
2: I would say it's too little too late, but he was alive in 95. So right. he was so there. At least he was there to get it. Right. You know, this is not like the induction where he's not alive. But, uh.
1: You know I'm saying? Like, hey, we're assholes. Here you go. We screwed up. Right. You know. Yeah. I, I. But, um, he left Florida in 34, and, um, he was on the, once again, this term comes up barnstorming. Mm hmm. He was on a bunch of barnstorming tours, just touring the country playing ball.
2: The Zulu Cannibal Giants was one of those teams.
1: Yep. um, And then after a few years of that, he signed with the Memphis Red Sox. Yep. Their first year in the um, newly formed Negro American League. Yep. And then he got sold to the KC Monarchs the following year, which I think is probably one of the two or three premier teams you think of when you think of the Negro Leagues.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's Devin, Homestead, Grays, they always get brought up.
1: The Grays, the Monarchs. Um, Maybe the Pittsburgh
2: Crawfords. Uh, Birmingham a Black Barons. I
1: like the Atlanta Black Crackers. The Atlanta <laughs>
2: Black Crackers, yeah. Uh, you the know. Black
1: White Guys. It's literally what that name says. Yeah. The black, I love it.
2: Yeah. Montgomery had a team called the Montgomery Gray Sox, you know. And, mm-hmm. um, there's a...
1: There's a bunch of them. I think Columbus had a team, Columbus Georgia, maybe. They Australia.
2: probably did. I would have to check. Uh, I
1: played at Golden Park a few times, and I'm pretty sure they got a plaque about it. I'd, I, I'd have to. At one
2: point, out. one of Columbus's minor league teams was called the Columbus Confederate Yankees, in like 64, 65, because they were a Yankees farm team, but they didn't like that, so they changed. They were like, you know, we're no, we're still Southern, so we're the Confederate Yankees.
1: When I lived there, <laughs> it was the last year of the Red Sticks with two X's. Oh yeah. Um, but um, he had a batting average of 288 between 1937
2: and
0: 1950.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, including four 300 plus seasons, and he had five seasons, but he also had five seasons where he was sub 260, so getting close to the Mendoza.
2: Yeah, he also won the bang, he also won a couple of bang championships.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, he led the NAL with a 353 average in um. Uh, Forty-six, and in forty-seven he had a three-fifty in sixteen games, and in uh, nineteen forty he hit three forty-five, and in nineteen forty-nine he hit three thirty, and he was in three East-West All-Star games in three different seasons and two Negro League World Series. Yep, um, he was interrupted for two years during World War II when he joined the Navy at the end of the 43 season. And um, he served as a list in a Naval Construction Battalion, in New Jersey. And then at, after his um, couple of years in the service, he went back to uh, the Monarchs. Yeah. In Kansas City.
2: And, and then... There, um, at one point he was the manager. Fra- oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. After,
1: after Frank Duncan, that's what I'm getting to right now. Yeah, Frank Duncan. After Frank Duncan passed away, um, O'Neill was named the manager in 1948 and continued to play first bases as a regular through 51. And then he joined part time afterwards, kind of bringing in a big poppy, you know. Big poppy only plays first base. <laughs> only plays first base in a national league park, otherwise, he's at the age. That's kind of how I feel like I feel like that's how I'm envisioning him doing this. Yeah. Oh, you need an off day? I'll cover first base for you today. <laughs> I, can, I can fill in for you. Yeah. Um, he managed the Monarchs for eight seasons, um, he was there 48, 55. Mm hmm. And which was kind of the tail end of the Negro Leagues, and they're starting to decline. Mm -hmm. And um, he won two league titles during his managership, and he shared a title in which no playoff was held. Yeah. Um, But he has two undisputed pennants, fifty-three and fifty-five, when the league had shrunk to less than six teams. So you know, it's kind of like my men's league. We've got six or eight teams, so it's kind of like winning that. It's real small, real compact.
2: Right, because integration is just taking hold on, and people have just lost interest in Negro League baseball.
1: Um, Wikipedia has a really good graph of his batting stats. If y'all would like to go check it out, um, just go to Wikipedia and type in Buck O apostrophe N-E-I-L with one L. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's got him year by year. You get the same thing on baseball reference, I'm sure. Yeah. But it's one of the few Wikipedia baseball player pages that I've ever seen that has stats on it. And um, Buck O'Neill... When Tom Baird sold the Buck sold the Monarchs in 1955, he resigned as the manager and he uh, started scouting for the Cubs. Um, without him, the Cubs would have never signed Lou Brock to his first professional contract. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also incorrectly credited with having signed Ernie Banks. Um, Ernie Banks got signed to the Cubs by Cool Papa Bell. Yeah, well, could make like an absolute about that guy. Yep. I just about that guy's name alone. I just cool read about. Papa Bell. I
2: just finished reading a biography about him last month. So yeah.
1: I wish I had a name like that. Cool, cool Papa. Papa Bell. That's
2: a. He's from Mississippi. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but um, he was the manager of the barnstorming B team for the Monarchs, and um, he wound up, yeah, know, getting the Cubs job. No signing any banks to the Cubs. Yeah, yeah. And um. Cool. Kuba Bell had also played for the Monarchs briefly in 1950 and in 53, but he was also on army duty. Um, um, O'Neill really gained his national prominence with his um, descriptions of the Negro Leagues as a part of Ken Burns' 1994 PBS documentary on baseball. Oh, yeah. Um, he was a part of it. I'm a big fan of that series because my second cousin, as I told you before, um, Bobby Horton out of Birmingham. Mm hmm. The Great Banjovi, as Rick and Bubba call him, he did, he did the musical score for that, and uh, as well as multiple other Ken Burns documentaries, like Civil War, yeah, yeah, definitely Civil War, yeah. Um, man, after that, he became the um, subject of plenty of interviews. He was always on, um, he was on Late Show with Dave Letterman, yep. and um, The Late Late Show with Tom Snyder, oh, that's a little before my time.
2: Yeah, Tom Snyder, he was old school. And
1: then in 1990, he led the effort to establish the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City and served as Honorary Board Chairman until his death. And in 1996, he became the recipient of an Honorary Doctor of Business Administration from the University of Missouri, Kansas City. And in 2002, at the end of the um, NLBM, Negro League Baseball Museum, Legacy Awards at NLBG, he received an induction ring from the Baseball Scouts Hall of Fame in St. Louis.
2: Forgot there. I didn't know there was a cancel that off. That's cool. Here's something else really cool.
1: O'Neill and Ichiro Suzuki—they developed a relationship.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, he attended the Year leagues baseball deal with O'Neill, seeking O'Neill's knowledge of the game when the Mariners would have road games in Kansas City. And here's a quote from Ichiro: "With Buck, I felt something big. The way he carried himself, you can see and tell and feel that he loved this game." Mm-hmm. And then in 2006, he received an honorary doctorate in education from Missouri Western State, where he also gave the commencement. Uh, he was on an 18 member Baseball Hall of Fame Veterans Committee from 18, 1981 to 2000. Yep. And played an important role in the induction of six Negro League players from ninety five to 2001, during the time the Hall had a policy of inducting one Negro Leaguer per year. Mm-hmm. With him being on the Veterans Committee, it seems like he'd already been in.
2: you think it would be, but no. So then we got 2006, where they induct all of the 17 Negro Leaguers, and Buck was left out.
1: He needed nine to
2: 12. He needed nine to. He needed, nine he votes.
1: needed, he needed 12 votes. Okay. He got nine oh. out of the 16.
2: Mm-hmm. And people were furious. Like Keith Olbermann was furious. <laughs> and Buck's like, "Look, man, don't don't worry about
1: it." But they inducted 17 Negro Leaguers that year.
2: Still, so that's impressive, you know.
1: Um and here's a quote of him on that. God's been good to me. They didn't think Buck was good enough wait, who is who said this?
2: Is Buck speaking in third person?
1: God's been good to me. They didn't think Buck was good enough to be in the Hall of Fame. That's why they thought about it and that's the way it is. So we're gonna Yes, he is. So we're gonna live with that. Now if I'm a Hall of Famer for you, that's hard right with me. Just keep loving old Buck. Mm-hmm. Don't weep for Buck. Nah, man. Be happy. Be thankful.
2: Yep. And then, in July, at the induction ceremony, he gave the speech when they were inducting all those people. And you can look it on YouTube. It's a great speech. And they sing a song. And it's great. So, and then shortly after, he passed away from bone marrow cancer. So, that was sad. I remember, I got back, I remember when he died, I got back from a cruise. We're in Jacksonville, Florida, at the hotel. And I'm reading, like, Time Magazine or whatever in the lobby, and I found out the news that Buck O'Neill passed away, and I was heartbroken because I didn't. When he passed away, I was on the cruise, and I had no idea. But uh, I was like, damn, Buck O'Neal died. That's, I, I, I didn't cry, but it broke my heart, man. I was, I was really sad after that. But, uh, but yeah, but Buck O'Neal's got an award. The Hall of Fame has an award for him, the Lifetime Achievement Award.
1: One more thing I want to say about Buck O'Neill. and that's awesome that they do have that, because it seems like he got snubbed at first. Do you know about his time with the Kansas City T-Bones?
2: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. Yes. So you tell. Yeah.
1: At 94 years old, eight months and five days, he played a professional baseball game with the Kansas City T-Bones. Mm-hmm. Surpassing 83-year-old Jim Eriotes. E-R-I-O-T-E-S. That sounds about right. Um, he struck out. He played in the game just a week earlier, but that claim was an error as the Schomburg Flyers of the Northern League had signed Ted Double Duty Radcliffe to a one-game tryout one-game contract and allowed him to face one batter when he was 96. While O'Neal was the second-oldest pro player, the claim was amended that he would be the oldest person to make a plate appearance. And that was in 99. And then in 2006, the Kansas City T-Bones retired his number.
2: <laughs> um, That's a
1: good way to cap a baseball career.
2: And Stephen Colbert talked about it on the Colbert Report, so that was cool.
1: Back when that show was fun. <laughs> right. And now. now the, not political.
2: It's just. Yeah. I mean. That's. I, I don't. I, we, that That's off subject. But I just don't care for Steven's new show now. Not
1: me neither. Anyway, and I'm sure most of the people we get along with. Have like minds of us for the most part. Yeah. It's like if Steven. we're offending you by not liking Stephen Colbert. I'm not sorry.
2: I mean. It's just not. <laughs> I mean. It's just not the same. Not Any, my
1: humor.
2: Anyway. But yeah. But Buck was just great man. And. You All know.
1: All right. Yeah. 100%. Um, and now we're going to move on to our next Hall of Famer a guy born April 4th 1924 Mr. Gilbert Ray Hodges yep he's a first baseman and manager and he played 18 years most of it with the Brooklyn slash Los Angeles Dodgers Mm -hmm. although he played a little bit of time with the Mets Um, and then as a manager he managed the Washington Senators from 63 to 67 and the New York Mets from 68 to 71 Eight-time All-Star, three-time World Series champion, three-time Gold Glove winner. He hit four home runs in one game on August 31st of 1950. Mm -hmm. And he's retired by the Mets, number 14, and he's in the Mets Hall of Fame. And he also got the bare minimum to get in the Hall of Fame in the Golden Days era committee at 75%. He
2: got in. Got in. Doesn't matter how you got in, but you got in. And he was just a very good player. He's one of the boys of summer, like that book by Roger Kahn. There, Jackie Robinson, and all these guys.
1: Oh, he's widely regarded as the best first baseman in the 50s.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, if if hitting as well as defense, the Gill was great, you know.
1: The only player in the 50s that had more home runs or RBIs the entire decade of the 50s was his teammate Duke Snyder.
2: Yeah, and that's he he got in the Hall of Fame in
1: 1980. So, you know, where's the the lapse here? Why are we
2: right, you know.
1: Um, and he had the NL record for career home runs by a righty from 60 to 63, um, with 370. Oh, wow. Which is, uh, 10th in Major League history.
2: That's, yeah, wow.
1: There's a big gap between 370 and... 762. 762. Yeah. And, you know, we all know a little bit of that has to do with a little bit of a needle. But most of those names on that top 10 aren't needle guys. Right. Hank, Hank only a couple
2: Roof. You know, they're not need hit
1: Maybe some greenies here and there. But,
2: you know, but I don't think greenies can to me. A little upper never
1: hurt anybody, I guess, as far as seeing a baseball goes. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and he held the NL record for Grand Slams from 57 to 74. It doesn't say how many, but um, he was an eight-time All-Star. He anchored the infield on six-time pennant-winning champion New York Mets. Yep. not New York Mets. That was um, with the Dodgers.
2: Yeah. He played in all those Dodger teams. Uh, 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 I can't speak. He played on all of those uh, Dodgers World Series teams in the uh, 40s and 50s. You know, just, you know, he he bled Dodger, The man bled Dodger Blue, even if he finished his career with the Mets, but still, you know. And one of my favorite stories when he was the Mets manager, they're in the 1969 World Series. I think it's game three. It was at Shea Stadium. Our fellow Alabamian Mobile native Cleon Jones is at the bat. And Dave McNally, the Orioles pitcher, threw a ball inside. Uh, Jones like ducked. Like he got out like he didn't duck, but like he kinda like backed out of the way. And he felt the ball hit his shoe. And so Cleon said, Alright, well I'm gonna go to first base. But the umpire said, no, ball won. Umpire didn't see it hit a shoe. And so Gil Hodges comes out there, and you can watch it on on the 60s version of Ken Burns Baseball. The, announcer, the, uh, the narrator in that film says, Hodges called for the ball. So Hodges had called... shoe polish on it. Yeah, it had shoe polish. And he, he showed the umpire... Hodges showed the umpire a speck of shoe polish on that baseball, saying it did hit him here's the shoe polish. Look at that. And then Parish said, okay, you go to first base, Cleon Jones. And so he went to first base and then Earl Weaver came out and argued. Said, what are you doing? I don't agree with this. And we all know Earl Weaver. Earl Weaver liked Earl to argue. Earl
1: Weaver loved to get to the beer cooler in the clubhouse early.
2: Right. And then the next batter, Don Clendenin, who we talked about in the the 69 episode, he was with the Mets now. He hits a two-run home run and that helped the Mets win. I believe they won game three. And, yeah. <laughs>
1: so, I had an old head baseball coach in college. And he encouraged everybody to uh, shoe polish their shoes. Mm-hmm. Or at least the parts that weren't fabric. Yeah. Because I remember when we were growing up as kids, all the shoes were at least patent leather. Yeah. But he encouraged. And by the time I had the college they are all fabric. Like, we wore new balances at the U.N. And they were basically wearing tennis shoes and splicing them a bottom. Yeah. But I had an old head coach that encouraged us to all to shoe polish our shoes for that exact situation.
2: Because it could happen. It could absolutely happen. Oh,
1: it's happened to me. I've gotten screwed by it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but at but the same time, it was like men's league. I'm going to take my hacks if I'm paying for it.
2: Yeah. And you know, the '69 Mets, they get well remembered because nobody thought they were going. Nobody thought they were going to be good because in '62 they were so bad. And then they '69, nine, seven years later, they win the World Series. The Miracle Mets man, you know, and he managed with Tom C Tom Seaver and the young Nolan Ryan and all these guys and the, you know that play for the Mets, our fellow Alabamians, Cleon Jones and Tommy A. G, you know, Don Tommy Clinton. Age, I forget
1: that name a
2: lot. Yeah, I think Agee he's got, from Bama, right? He yeah, he he's Does he play
1: football at bama also? I don't or know. He, a different Agee?
2: That's a different A. G. Tommy A. G.
1: They're probably cousins from Red Bay, Alabama, if I had to guess. <laughs> well, so Alabama seems to work.
2: They're both from, well, both A.G. and Jones are from Mobile. Okay. They wrote a, somebody wrote a book about them the next year called The Mets from Mobile. Gotcha. So, yeah. I know there was
1: an A.G. guy that played football at
2: Bama. I, I'm sure they're, they're probably related. They're
1: probably second cousins.
2: But, yeah, but this, but anyway, but, yeah, and then, poor Gil Hodges, he passed away in 1972 of a heart attack in spring training. They were, he was playing golf in Florida and he passed away. And was, it was he still
1: playing when that happened?
2: No no he's retired. Retired
1: was he there as like an assistant coach or something
2: no he was he's still he was still the manager of the Mets okay gotcha this is like you know he they didn't fire him after 71 like he was still the manager of the Mets he was there for spring training and then he croaked uh and so in 2019 myself and my, some of my fellow interns we went to a New York Mets game it's at, at a city field they played the Braves. And they were honoring the 69 Mets that year because it was the 50th anniversary. And Gil Hodges' widow was at the game being honored with all the former players. And this woman is in her 90s. And she's still alive today. Like, she felt like when Gil Hodges was elected back in December, she was still alive. I think she's still alive now. But, you know, it's just... And this woman had, like, bright, bright red hair and, you know, like, typical grandma hair. But, uh... You know, it was just really cool. It's like, oh, wow.
1: So cool. she's going to give his induction speech for
2: him. Either it could be her or it could be his kids. I'm not 100% okay, sure. all the above.
1: Yeah. Because um, the NASCAR Hall of Fame inductions were this previous two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a guy who had passed away in a racing accident that got in. Mm-hmm. And the Hall of Fame rules there says, you can't do that. But Dale Earnhardt Jr. was like, no. You're going to let his wife give a speech. Yeah. He wound up conceding to Dale Jr. on it.
2: I mean that's what they did with Roy Halladay's widow when he when she gave his speech in 2019.
1: I was just asking if it was the, the rules were the same there because I know NASCAR's Hall of Fame is like you have to be living to give your speech. But right, but Dale Jr. Like, said this ain't how this is going, and they get, they conceded to him. But no,
2: it's either a family member, or in Marvin Miller's case, you know, uh, the closest to kin kind of deal. No, it was uh, Donald Fear, the guy who replaced Marvin Miller as the head of the MLBPA. He gave Miller's induction speech, but that's another story I'll get into another time. But with Gil Hodges, he out of at least on social media anyway, for years and years, I have seen countless people campaigning for Gil Hodges to get into the baseball hall of fame. And I'm glad that he finally got in because it just shut those people up because it, you know, and I am I try not to get into campaigning for somebody who should be in the Hall of Fame and who should not. Because it's just an endless debate and I it's just not going to make anybody happy. There's the no one I'll in. hang
1: my hat on is Pete Rose.
2: Right. And it's just not going to make anybody happy. It just makes people pissed off. It's like talking politics. Right. It's, it's like, baseball fans. you know, and, you know, you have to understand Brooklyn Dodgers fandom is just all the way out there, you know, and he's part of the glory years with Jackie and... Yeah, before Weed, they moved. right before they moved, and they're fondly remembered more compared to the New York Giants. Uh, but it's just like, man, if you're going to be a fan of the Brooklyn Dodgers, you need to be a fan of like their stuff before 1947 as well, because you know, name name me somebody to think about like Zach Weed or or Dazzy Vance or somebody like that, and, and talk me more about that. I'll be more interested. But anyway, it's just like, finally, they shut those people up. <laughs> oh, man, man. <laughs> Anyway, so that's all I got to say about Gil Hodges. What do you say? I'm set. Let's talk about our next guy.
0: The next the next uh, Hall of Famer of this class we're going to talk about is Oreses
1: Mini Menoso.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um He was born Saturino Oreses Armas Mignoso Um in 1925. Um, he was nicknamed the Cuban Comet and Mr. White Sox.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, he started off his career as a Cuban ball player. And he... Um, he started off in the Negro Leagues in '46, and he became an all-star third baseman with the New York Cubans. Yep. And then um, he was signed by the Cleveland Indians in 1948, um, not long after the baseball's color line fell. Yep. Um, he is an all-star as left footer with the Indians and the White Sox. And he's the first Afro-Latino in the major leagues and the first black player in White Sox history. Mm-hmm. As 1951, when he was a rookie, he was one of the first Latin Americans to play in an MLB All-Star game. Um, He was born in Cuba. He passed away in 2015 in Chicago. Righty, righty. Professional debut in Negro League in 47 for the Cubans. And Major League Baseball in 1949, April, for the Cleveland Indians. And his last appearance was in 1980 for the White Sox. Mm -hmm. So I'd say... uh, Thirty one year major
2: league career. Yeah. And um so his 31 birth-
1: years, Matt. That's a long time.
2: Yeah. On and off yeah. But um so his date his birth date was listed nineteen twenty five. However, kinda like Satchel Page, there's some uh there's some discrepancies of or differences of uh, when he was actually born. Because if you look on Wikipedia... And of course we all know, we, we, you know... According to Wikipedia... His date of birth is often cited as being November 29th, 1923. However, his Republic of Cuba 1951 driver's license... And his first tops baseball cards uh, in fifty two List his date as November 29th, 1925. And then... Uh, it you know when he passed away in 2015 his family hand out handed out baseball cards that had you know his birth and death printed as 24 to 1924 to 2015 so to a lesser extent of like a satchel page nobody really knew when he like, they couldn't figure out when his birthday was like when he was born but he was from Cuba you know him. And also Tony Oliva, who we're going to talk about later in this episode, they are. Uh, Meneoso is one of six Cubans elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. First one was Martín De Higo in 1977, and then in 2006, in the the mass election of Negro Leaguers, you had um, Jose Mendez and Cristobal Toriente. Oh, I forgot. In two thousand, you had Tony Perez, who played for the Big Red Machine in the seventies, and now you have Mignoso and Oliva. So now we have six Cubans in the Baseball Hall of Fame. So that's cool.
1: I kind of understand uh, acting like you're younger than you are, though, because with foreign documents, you're not necessarily gonna be able to prove it, and at the same time, you're going to um, you're going to have more upside if you're younger. Yeah. Yeah. So.
2: Yeah, and um, he played in Cuba and then he got his break in the Negro Leagues with the New York Cubans, who I believe at the time was owned by a guy named Alex Pompez, who, like Mendez and Torriente, was part of the 17, who got elected in 2006. And um, in 19, so in forty seven in Mignoso's first season there, they won the Negro League World Series over the Cleveland Buckeyes. And he was the starting first baseman in the I'm sorry, third baseman in the East. The starting third baseman for the East in the 1947 East West All-Star Game in in Chicago. In the Negro League All-Star Game. And again, he was like that in 1948. So it was very productive in his time in the Negro Leagues. Which, you know, scouts the color barriers fallen. Scouts are looking for other African Americans, or well, Cuban American dark, you know, dark skinned Cuban Americans in Munoz's case, to, you know, get their scout, And then he signed with the Cleveland Indians during the 1948 season, and he started his minor league career in Dayton, Ohio, for the Dayton Indians. And then he broke in 1949 with the Indians, and uh, his first game was against the St. Louis Browns on April 19th, and he drew a walk as a pinch hitter in the seventh inning of the game when they lost to the St. Louis Browns, which, you know, it's the Browns. <laughs> the Browns are usually not very good, but now you have to understand the Indians were the defending...
1: Are talking football or baseball?
2: Baseball. Well, <laughs> I'm talking both. Well, yeah, both. And you have to understand the Indians were the defending World Series champs. They won the World Series the year before, you know. But then he got his first hit in May 4th off uh, Alex Kellner, Alex Kellner of the A's, in, in a four to three win. So he started with the Indians. I feel bad for him because like he came up, you know, after the year after they won the World Series. But uh... you know, he he played few games for the Indians, but then he had. Um, they sent him back down to the Minor Leagues, they sent him to the San Diego Padres, the Pacific Coast League for the rest of the forty nine season all nineteen fifty. So he spent, you know, the rest of forty nine fifty with the Padres, the Minor League Padres. And he hit two ninety seven and then the first year in three three nine the second year. So he's doing well. And then he rejoined the Indians in fifty one, but the team could not find a spot for him, so they traded him to the White Sox. And this is where he starts his reign as Mr. White Sox. This is where he really started to shine.
1: Mr. Sox.
2: Right, and Sox teams of the fifties, for a majority of the White Sox existence, they have not been a very good team. But you know, he goes to the athletic, not Athletics. He goes to the White Sox, and this is where he really sh- It really shines. And in on May first of fifty one, he became the first black player on the White Sox. He was the first black player on the Chicago White Sox. So he broke the White Sox's color barrier, if you can call that, and he hit a 415-foot home run in Comiskey Park on the first pitch in his first at bat that game against the New York Yankees. He was an instant star, you know, and he just, you know, he just, you know, in an era where, at least until '59 when they won the pennant, he was a star on the White Sox. Him and, and Nellie Fox and later Luis Aparicio, who was from Venezuela. You know they were the stars in these White Sox teams. That, that for the longest time the White Sox just you know, for a long in their history they just weren't a very good team. But he was a star in the White Sox. Well, he
1: had years where he's competing with Dom DiMaggio for run run titles.
2: Yeah, and uh, you know on the he's a nine time All Star in his career, but what, um,
1: seven as major leaguer, two as a um, Negro leaguer.
2: No, no nine. No, no. Two is a Negro Leaguer. Nine is a all, a Major League All Star.
1: I'm calling that an 11 time All Star. Yeah, I heard it here and now. Negro League All Star appearances count as All Star appearances.
2: Right, they are. They are Major League. Negro leagues are Major leagues. You know, it's official. It's been like that since December 2020. So a majority of his All Star appearances were with the White Sox. Four straight from 51 to 54, and then 57. And, and
1: that, was, um, that was unheard of for an African American male in that time period.
2: All right, the man was a heck of a ball player, and...
1: Oh, his flash line's money.
2: Yeah, and he led, I mean, in the American League, like, he led, he batted over 308 seasons. He led the American League in triples and stolen bases three times each, and he led also led in hits, doubles, and total bases once. So he was in the league lead for multiple hitting categories and steals. He knew what he was doing. The man could play, and now he's in the Hall of Fame. And he also won three gold gloves, 57-59-60. Uh, oh, yeah, he got back to the White Sox. So, like, in, after 57, they trade him back to the Indians from 58-59. So, he missed playing for the Go-Go White Sox when they won the American League pennant. So, I feel bad for Manny Miosa. He never got to play in a World Series. He missed out <laughs> on playing in World Series.
1: So, Wikipedia says... He helped the Go-Go White Sox get to where they got without being able to participate. Right. <laughs> because I mean, he was with those guys, and they all fed off each other. But, dude, he's got, he's got if he played modern-day baseball, yeah. his batting average, 299, 21, 110 hits, mm-hmm. 195 home runs, and uh, just shy of 1,100 rubies. Like,
2: they would hold up today.
1: I, I, I think that those numbers hold up today. Like You know, the magic number for batting average is 300. Yeah. Or 299. If you're a 300 hitter and you have a lengthy career, you're in.
2: He can play today. I mean, you know. And then after... He could still hit fastball. He can still hit, yeah. And then after 59, he got traded back to the White Sox for two seasons. 60 61. And then they traded him to the Cardinals in 62. And... He went to the Recinders in sixty three and then back to the White Sox in sixty four where he where he okay ended his career, but did he really? No. Because in nineteen seventy six, Bill Vec, who owned the White Sox in his second stint, brought Manny Minoso back to play a couple of games. And at that time Manny Mignoso was uh, he turned well, he was in his fifties. Right? <laughs> he was called out of time to prefer to be a first and third base coach for the white Sox, But then he made three game appearances for the Sox in September and games against California Eagles, picking up one single and eight at bats Four coming as a designated hitter, you know, <laughs> and he became at the time became the fourth oldest player to get a base hit in the major leagues. Right? So this is, he came out of time for that. 1980. This is Bill Vex last year as the owner of the White Sox. Mignoso comes back again as a player. And he was a pinch hitter in two games against the Angels once again. He became the oldest player to play in the major leagues behind Nick Altrock, who in 57, pinch hit in 1933, Charlie Lindley, Charlie O'Leary, who it in 58, and of course, Hatchel Page in 59. And so, you know... Mignoso joined Alt-Rock as just the second player in Major League history to play in five decades, right? So, 1990 rolls around. It's the White Sox last year at the original Comiskey Park. Should never tore that place down. But again, short of no time. Mignoso was scheduled to make an appearance with the minor league Miami Miracle of the Florida State League, which at the time was owned by
1: that's the current team, too. The uh, They're now the Fort Myers-Miracle. Fort Myers-Miracle.
2: Myers- yeah. I should know they changed the name to the Muscles. Anyway, so he was going to play for the Miami Miracle, who at the time was owned by, and probably still is owned by, Bill Vec's son, Mike Vec, along with Bill Murray, the actor, and Marvin Goldklang and some other guys.
1: I love Bill Murray and his um, affinity for baseball.
2: Right. I do, too, man. He's great. He was going to play in the Florida State League, which uh, for the team in the Florida State League, which... Is now whatever. It was part of the, minor league, the the official minor leagues. But Major League Baseball overruled the Miracles idea. They're like, no, we're not going to do it. And then the last game, of Com- last game played at Comiskey Park, he was invited to present the White Sox lineup card to the umpires in the pregame ceremonies at home plate. And he did so while wearing the new uniform debuted by the White Sox that day. His familiar number nine on the back. But here's the best part. Even though he couldn't play for the Miracle in 1990, in 1993, when Mike Veck also started the St. Saint ball Saints of the Independent Northern League, he got Mignoso to come play, to do a plate appearance at 67 years old. And I believe he walked. And then again, he returned to the Saints in 2003 and drew a walk. And he's the only player to appear professionally in seven different decades. You can do this in independent ball. This is something you cannot do in organized minor league baseball, right? Independent ball, he could pull that off. So
1: that's like um, what's his name, uh, Kevin Millar playing for the St. Saint Paul Saints a couple of years ago. Right,
2: but and the thing is, Kevin Millar was on the ninety-three, was on that first Saints team in ninety-three.
1: Oh, I didn't realize that about him.
2: Yeah, that he has that connection. Well,
1: uh, right, even one more, um, Pat McAfee.
2: Okay, Matt, pa-
1: I love Pat McAfee's radio show. <laughs> if y'all don't listen He's to a, Pat McAfee's radio show, I'm serious. Or on YouTube, y'all are missing out. He is, he is. wild. He's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but he got to he got to play baseball. I think it's for St. Paul again. I'm not sure. I, I, I forget the team.
2: I could go look it up on his Instagram yeah, page.
1: Yeah, it, it ain't worth it for this episode. But right. this isn't a charity case. This is a guy that is actually a ball player.
2: Right. But, you know, with these, in the foresight of Bill Vec and Mike Veck, I mean, you also got to extend his career whether it be even if it was just a couple games or a single game, didn't matter. Only the Vex could pull that off. <laughs> no no other owner could pull that off, you know. And, you know, he was Mr. White Sox. You know, he's referred to as Mr. White Sox. He has a statue at guaranteed rate field or whatever. It is.
1: awesome to be Mr. Whatever Team.
2: Yeah. You know, like...
1: I would love to be Mr. AUM. Yeah, Mr. Or Mr. Columbia, Mr. Jeff State. Yeah, you know.
2: Yeah. And you know, he became a member of the Chicago Land Sports Hall of Fame ninety four and the Mexican Professional Baseball Hall of Fame in ninety six and the Hispanic Heritage Baseball Museum Hall of Fame in two thousand two and of course the Cuban Baseball Museum in 2014. And he's also inducted into the baseball reliquary shrine of the eternals. But the thing is it's like so in two thousand six when they inducted all those, those 17 Negro League players and executives, they put Mignoso on that ballot. And at the time, that was peculiar because, as we discussed, he only played a very short amount of time in the Negro Leagues. The majority of his career was in the major leagues. So they put him on that ballot, and, of course, he didn't get elected then, which I thought, that's just that, what, that just doesn't seem smart, in my opinion. That was kind of controversial. And then they tried, I think he was on the ballot in 2013, and that was the year that nobody, well, no, he didn't get elected, and as well as nobody else on the Veterans Committee. I don't know. Anyway, he didn't get elected that year either. And then he passed away in 2015 at the age of 90. And then this year, this past, this year he's getting inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And my dad, oh, man, we were at Taco Mama. My dad and my brother's, we're eating supper and dad God bless him he, he, he doesn't know a lot about sports he's gotten better over the years but most of my sports come from my mom's side of the family and he confused Minnie minioso with fellow baseball hall of famer and tuscumbia native Heine minouche and he called Minoso mini Manouche and i just laughed i thought that was funny
1: well, I think your dad, y'all you know, I think your pops is trying to keep up with your knowledge to make it interesting to you, and he just got his wires crossed a little bit, you know.
2: Yeah, I would say so, but yeah, I just thought it was I just thought it was funny. Because I
1: guarantee you know more about baseball than anybody else I know, or at least the history of it.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, sabermetrics that's whole another ballgame, but yeah, well, historically, yeah, I know a lot of stuff. I know a lot about baseball, but yeah, that's all I got to say about Munoz. You have anything to add?
1: I'm set, man. Let's move on to uh, our next Hall of Famer, uh, Mr. Tony Pedro Oliva.
2: Yep, Munoz's fellow Cuban.
1: Yep, he's a he's a Cuban. Is a right fielder, DH, and um, he's a coach now. Or I think it might not be still now, but he was a coach. He played his entire 15 year career with the uh, Twins from '62 to '76 with a uh, slash line of 304. 220 home runs and 947 ribbies. Yep. He was the Twins from 62 to 76. Eight-time All-Star, two-time World Series champion, That's... AL Rookie of the Year 1964, Gold Glove 1966, three-time AL batting champion, 64, 65, 71. And he was retired. The num- the Twins have retired number six. And he's also in the Hall of Fame. And he also hit the Golden Day Committee area out of the 16 votes. He got the 12 needed for an exact 75%.
2: Yeah, I should um, I should note that that when he won when he got those rings, he was a coach on the Twins, because it was in eighty seven ninety one. Yeah,
1: so his post playing career. Yeah, but he is a uh, two time World Series champion, and if you look at his Wikipedia, it's got a picture of him, in his older age in two thousand ten as like a, probably like a hitting consultant or something like that. I'm not sure of the full role. Yeah, but he was still on the staff. Um, he moved to the U S in sixty one, and he's a minor leaguer until sixty four and. In what everybody calls baseball's second dead ball era, right before the steroid era. <laughs> yeah. Um he was one of the best games here in all star in his eight first eight seasons. Um the fact he's a two hundred ninety nine hitter, or a three oh four hitter. Three oh four hitter. Three oh four hitter, two twenty arm runs, I'd love to see his stolen because I don't have those right in front of me. But I bet he was a uh, singles doubles guy and stole some sacks.
2: Yeah. I mean he got two hundred hits every now and then.
1: Um, in the season Yeah, he was uh, the Amer- he, he was the American the American League leader In hits five times During his career The man so can the, 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 the man can rate He's not going to be A power guy
2: But he's going to Hit for average And get on base mm-hmm. You know uh, So he's he He's going to
1: hit doubles And uh, singles and doubles Occasionally he might Like out a triple Kind of catch Well,
2: he didn't steal A lot of bases He only stole 86 bases In his career
1: Oh, yeah So he, he was just to get him over Get him in guy
2: Right, you know he hit 220 home runs, so he had some power in his career.
1: But um, he showed up in 1961 and he appeared in the Twins' final three games, seven hits in his 10 at bats, and they'd already filled their minor league rosters and they cut him. And they said it was due to his poor outfield play. And um, he went to Charlotte and trained with a buddy who played for the Twins' uh, A team. The Charlotte Hornets, yeah. Yeah. But he wasn't on the team, he was working out with his buddy that was on the team. Oh. And um, he impressed a guy named Phil Hauser, mm-hmm. who was the general manager of Charlotte. and he placed a convol- he placed a call to uh Minnesota as so they signed him and um do a paperwork switch at his arrival in the u s he owned the spark date thing again
2: <laughs> oh, to reflect the name of his birthday his- bro- younger brother Pedro jr, yeah, yeah, so like about his age I mean you know.
1: But they put him in Class D, which I don't even know what that is these days. Um, in the Appalachian League, played sixty-four games and led the league with a four ten average and a fielding percentage of eight fifty-four. So that's the problem there.
2: Yeah, he could hit, but his field his gloving wasn't good.
1: We call that um, stone hands.
2: Yeah, and then or, or
1: pan hands.
2: And then after you know he he played uh, he played in the winter ball in Puerto Rico, and then he went back to Charlotte. In hundred and twenty seven games he hit three fifty with 70, 17 home runs and ninety-three RBIs. And he was called up to the majors yeah. with nine games left yeah. and he debuted on September ninth, nineteen sixty two, hitting four forty-four in twelve plate appearances. The man got the man's major clear is with his in hitting, not his fielding. You know.
1: Oh, the man's playing with one of those big red wiffle ball bats while everybody else is playing with the skinny yellow ones. Right. The way he hit the ball.
2: Yeah. And, you know, 64 and 65 that was the years 64 he won American League rookie of the year because in 62 and 63 he didn't play enough games to qualify for that. Which you could do that and he, he won ni- he re- he received 19 of 21st place votes. I wonder who who who, vote, who else voted for American League MVP or American League rookie of the year that year. The same
1: guy that said Tom Seaver shouldn't be named as Hall of Famer. Yeah. That's my problem we were talking about earlier with the Hall of Fame. Yeah, and how the baseline You always get that one guy that's a stubborn prick.
2: Yeah, but sixty four, he led the American League in hitting with three twenty three, making him the first player to ever win Rookie of the Year and a batting title, the American League batting title. And he placed in the AL with hits with two hundred seventeen, doubles forty three, XP six eighty four, total bases three hundred seventy four, hundred nine runs scored, and one hundred thirty three runs created, which I guess is RBIs. I don't know.
1: Um, runs created, it's, that's a weird stat,
2: it's like, yeah.
1: we can make our own episode, we need to make an episode on Sabermetrics, and we can cover that in there, that's a weird stat that's hard to really dive into. Yeah. And but then, um, his 374
2: total bases were a rookie record. Right. And then he finished 4th in MVP Bodie, which, that's okay. And then he
1: backed it up the next year.
2: 65, he led the league again. Yeah, he had
1: 321 in
2: 1965. Right. And he helped... Uh, He helped lead the Twins to the American League Championship that year. And that team was stacked because, as we've discussed in previous episodes, they had Harmon Killebrew. They had our Huntsville guy, Don Mincher. uh, Oliva's fellow Cuban, Zodo Versales, which we mentioned in the expansion episode. They had uh, the guy we're going to talk about next, Jim Cott. I believe it's Cott. It could be Cat. It could be Cott. I'm not sure.
1: I was calling him Cat.
2: Yeah, it could be Cat, you know. Here's my thing with 1965
1: with Oliva, though. He was one of three players in the league to hit over 300. The other two were Carl Yastrzemski and a guy I've never heard of, a guy named Vic DeValio. I've never heard of him either. Um, They were the only three people the next year in 1965 to hit over 300. Um, He was... 321, Yaz was 312, and Vic DeVito was 301. Yeah. And that's ushering in that new dead ball area.
2: Of course, 68 was the low point of hitting because Yastrzemski Yastrzemski won the batting title that year with a 301 average, which the 68 season could be an episode on its own. But anyway, in the 65 series, the Twins lose to the Sandy Koufax, Don Drysdale-led Uh, Los Angeles Dodgers in seven games. Let me look at his postseason stats. For the 65 series, in all seven games, he batted, it wasn't good. He batted 192 with a double, a home run, two RBIs, one walk and six strikeouts. So, yeah, he had a home run. It just was not a good appearance for him in the World Series. But, again, he helped his team get to the American League pennant, and it was the first Twins pennant. It will uh, be, be the last time they were in the World Series till 87 when they won it. So he's fondly, you know, he's part of that great 65 team, you know.
1: Yeah, um, star outfitter in 65, hitting coach in 87, and bench coach in 91. Yeah, so he I got mean, his will. Kind of that sums up. He got, he got his dude.
2: Right. That um, man loves the twins.
1: And then as far as his Hall of Fame candidacy has been confirmed, um, he's been considered for the election as a player. Um, Let me find this. right. Um, there's a writer but a guy named Bill James um, utilizing the what's called the Keltner list, which is a systematic non-numerical method for considering whether or not a baseball player is deserving. Mm-hmm. Um he said that Oliva was a very viable Hall of Fame candidate, but he ultimately didn't vote for him at the end of the year. <laughs> and several contemporaries have endorsed his instructor in the Hall of Fame, including um his longtime friend and teammate, a guy named Tony Perez, who mentioned him in his two thousand induction speech that he hoped Oliva would be in the Hall of Fame soon. Yep. And here we are, twenty two years later.
2: Well, hopefully Tony Perez comes to the induction this year.
1: 2000, 2001, 2003, 2005, 2007, he was considered by the Veterans Committee. And he's just not getting his shot. Well. And I think his numbers kind of back up him getting to the Hall of Fame.
2: Yeah, I mean, three time bang champion.
1: Having not heard of him until I researched for this episode, yeah. Like, I think he's very deserving of getting in there.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it's not like, uh, I'm not going to name it anyway, but like, you know, there are some candidates that the veterans committee has selected over the years, like from the fresh Terry years that are questionable at best, but, um,
1: sucker picks kind of.
2: Just yeah. But you know, Aliva the happy kind of picks elite. Al- yeah. Aliva is truly one person who, you know, it took a while, but they finally got him in. They're like, this guy could play. He could hit man. Won three batting championships. That's not easy to do. Let's get this guy in. They got him in. So,
1: Yeah, 100%. Um, I had never even knew who he was until this last week, researching for this episode. And I believe he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame.
2: I heard of him from a book about Buck O'Neill called The Soul of Baseball, written by Joe, Joe Poznanski. And like him and Buck O'Neill in 2005 were just traveling out of the country. I don't remember where. Maybe it was in Minnesota. Buck and Tony Oliva were talking and uh Buck was like, We should go back to Cuba sometime and Tony said and it's been a while since I read it, but I believe Tony said something along the lines of, Yeah, we'll go one day, Buck, you know, it'll open up, we'll, we'll open up, it will open up again, we'll go back one day.
1: It has opened up.
2: Yeah. But they never went back well, before Buck died. All right. But still, you know, that's, I just, that's where I first remember hearing Tony Oliva's name.
1: I love to see the relationships of these old ball players have with each other like you know like, I'm not a big Chipper Jones guy but I'd love to see what he's doing hanging out with Glavin and Maddox right now yeah. you know I'm sure they don't see each other as often as they'd like but
2: he's a character man I mean, like you know he's a good old southern boy well
1: no I just, I, I just like to see you. I like to be sitting in the corner of this room flying the wall when all these old time pig leaguers get together
2: yeah I mean like at the Hall of Fame I experienced that in 2019 I'm like yeah <laughs> But anyway, let's talk about... Let's
1: move on to, um... What? The the last... Jim the kitty cat?
2: Yeah. The last Veterans Committee guy. Yeah, um... He's from Zeeland, Michigan.
1: Yeah. Um... He played ball. He's been a commentator. Um... He's a lefty for the Senators and the Twins from 59 to 73. The Chicago White Sox, 73 to 75. The Phillies, 76 to 79. The New York Yankees, 79 to 80. And the Cardinals from 80 to 83. And, um... He's one of those weird cats where he only played two and a half decades, but it spewed across four.
2: Yeah. He, the man had a long career and he could pitch. He only led the league in wins once in 1966. He won. He led the American League with 25 wins. And that was one of his all-star appearances too. That year, one of his all-star appearances that year. And he was a member of the 1982 world champion St. Louis Cardinals. Mm-hmm. Yep, and uh, he went five okay. and three that year. So, you know, near the end of his career, he was like forty three, and he wins a ring for the Cardinals.
1: <laughs> it's really wild to me. He's another one of those guys. The Golden Days Era Committee. You got to have seventy five percent of the sixteen votes. He got exactly twelve of the sixteen.
2: And not only was he a great pitcher, he was a great defensive guy too.
1: Sixteen. 16- Time Gold Glove recipient. He won it every year from 1962 to 1977.
2: There was a picture of I saw a picture of him recently. Well, that was on social media. He was with the Chicago White Sox at the time, and this is when in the 70s when the White Sox wore red uniform. Like red, red was their color, which was weird. Anyway, and um, it was him with uh, with at the time all of his. Uh, gold Glove trophies, and they're like all over the place. And it's all, he's you like, got
1: the picture of him on the mound, with them all around him. Yeah, and that was a, I've seen that picture.
2: Yeah, and I was like, that man could play defense. But
1: no, he won 16 consecutive Gold, gold glove Gloves.
2: Awards. That's hard to do.
1: Everybody thought them. Uh, was it Glavine's called the Gold Glove Awards from Atlanta? Yeah, he I won so. one damn near every year. He didn't win 16 straight, brother. Sorry.
2: No, but you know. It, when I look at Jim Cott's numbers, or Cat...
1: I'm calling him Cat. You Cat, can call him
2: Cott, t- You know, 283 wins, 237 losses. That's similar to, like, Burt Blylevin's numbers. But Burt Blyleven, You know, Burt Blylevin is a guy who, like Jim Cott, had a long career, played for a bunch of teams. He was a member of the 79 World Champ Pittsburgh Pirates, which blew my mind. I'm like, he was on the Pirates? He also played for the Twins, too, but I don't... Maybe the same time as Cott, But uh, another his numbers and his longevity remind me of Burt Blylevin. He's like the left-handed version of Burt Blylevin in that sense. And they're both in the Hall of Fame now, so that's cool. And, of course, he was a member of the 65 American League team like Tony Oliva and all the other guys. Let me see. Let me get to his postseason pitch. I loved
1: his debut in 64. They gave up two home runs to Burt Campanaris. That Campena. was his. That was his. Uh, that was his debut.
2: Yeah, he gives a, homer, a couple homers to Burt Campaneris. Oh, Burt. he played for the Birmingham Barons in '64. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so in '65, you know, when he's going up against Koufax and Drysdale, you're you're not going to be successful. He's like one. Yeah, he
1: started three games in that World Series.
2: He did. He started three games, but he went one and two. One one. It's
1: uh, lucky to win one of them against that against that. Team. those
2: guys, yeah. Um, uh, his ERA at that time was three point seven seven, which is good, not bad, but good. Uh, gave him home run, two walks, struck out six. I mean, he did the best he could against the <laughs> uh Drysdale and Koufax.
1: And he had a heck of a pitching career. He had a five forty four winning percentage. Yeah, three forty five ERA. That's. You know, today's standards, that's mediocre. But back then, I feel like the game was a little different. You didn't have people throwing 99 mile hour fastballs at you with the heck of a cutter. You yeah. Know? And um, then
2: in the 82 World Series, he was used as a reliever. He appeared in four games of that series, two two 2.1 innings. You know, his ERA was 3.86, but he got rigged with the 82 Cardinals. So, you know, that's cool with Keith Hernandez and all those guys. Ozzie Smith, you know, it's cool. But he's just... Jim Cott was also, or is also, a broadcaster. So he stayed Mm -hmm. in the game as a broadcaster. I believe he's at the MLB Um, Network. He
1: started off his broadcasting career as a correspondent from Good Morning America from 84 to 85. And then um, he was with the Yankees, I think it was before the Yes Network, him. It says he called 100 games for WPIX in 1986, mm-hmm. but they only did one season there, placing with Billy Martin. <laughs> and then... Oh, um,
2: they just can't get rid of Billy.
1: And they only did that to second-guess Lou Piniella. So, even the broadcast people are playing games. Oh, man. Um, he spent six years, 88 to 93, as announcer for the Twins. And um, he was the back announcer for NBC Sports Coverage of Baseball with Phil Stone. For the April 19th, Minnesota-California contest. I'm not sure exactly what that's talking about. The Minnesota-California contest. I don't, I don't know. Oh, California Angels. Yeah. Um, because they weren't Anaheim Angels yet. Right. And then uh, he was with Jay Randolph for a day. So he was getting like day gigs. And then after he covered the College World Series, and the MLB Playoffs, and World Series for the SPN. And so it was, the, and it was for the uh, 88 Summer Olympics, back when baseball was still Olympic
2: sport. All right.
1: And then in the 90s, he was an analyst for CBS with Greg Gumbel and Dick Gumbel. Stockton.
2: Yeah, I remember Dick, yeah.
1: Um, but, yeah, uh, so through the 90s, 94, you know, he was a big, he was on the baseball tonight in 94, which I was four years old, I don't remember that. Oh, I love baseball tonight now, but. I don't either. Um, he's, he's, he's been nominated for Emmys for on-camera achievement, and yeah. Um, In the 2000s, he kind of retired, but every now and then he'd show up for a broadcast.
2: Yeah. I mean, he's just, you know, he he stayed in baseball. That's his, after his playing days, he found a way to stay in the game that he loved by broadcasting. And now he's in the Hall of Fame. And he's also.
1: That's what we're doing right now with this podcast and your time at the Hall of Fame and me playing men's ball. And mm -hmm. we love the game. Right. we're We're trying to hang on to it.
2: Yeah, we're still talking about, it, you know. Yeah, and um, he's also a member of the Minnesota Twins Hall of Fame, which that that should be a no brainer.
0: <sighs>
1: I think our next person we talk about might be a Twins Hall of Famer, also. I'm not sure. Yep, yeah. Well no, hes not, but
2: he should. Well, I'm, we're I'm,
1: about to move it on to our big buddy David Ortiz. Yep,
2: yeah, big old big Poppy.
1: And we're gonna wrap it up on Poppy. He was born in November of '75, and he's a Dominican. American. I want to bet he's one of the first Dominicans in the Hall of Fame, if not the first.
2: No, the first was Juan Marichal.
1: Okay, but how many are there between the two? I mean, not, I think, not many.
2: I think it's just him, Pedro Martinez, Vladimir Guerrero, and Big Poppy. Okay. I believe that's four. So now we have—I want to say it's four. Now we have four Dominicans. In the Baseball Hall of Fame, Big
1: favor. Poppy, um, the most terrifying man to ever pitch to in a clutch situation in modern baseball.
2: Yeah. <laughs> oh man.
1: We used to always talk when I was um, in college about which big leaguer would you be the most afraid to throw to? Yeah. And my answer was always Big Poppy. A lot of people was Pujols. My answer was Poppy. Mm-hmm. If it's a clutch situation, he's taking you yard. Sorry. But yeah. um, he came up with the Minnesota wins and. I'm sticking off the top of my head from listening to his podcast with a guy named Jerry Carabas from Barstool Sports. Mm-hmm. Call me a poppy. Like, he came with the Twins in the minor leagues. He was living in the back of his damn Saturn coupe.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Might not
1: have been a Saturn. He was living in the back of his damn car in the parking lot of the stadium. Mm-hmm. Waiting on the stadium to open so they could take batting pass and get a shower. And um, he was signed with the Mariners in 92 and they traded him to the Twins in 96. And um, he played... Most of six seasons with the Twins. And then he was released and signed by the Red Sox in 2003. And out of his mouth, the Boston media was like, we made a mistake signing this guy.
2: Boston said that?
1: Boston fans did. <laughs> Boston media did.
2: <laughs> Boy, do they live to regret that. Yeah. He crowed um, on that one.
1: But yeah, yeah. Um, he was signed by the Mariners in 92, 10 days after his 17th birthday. Um, they named him as David Argus because they didn't know how Spanish names were. Uh, obviously. Um, he made his pre- premiere not premiere. He made his debut, debut in 1994 for the Mariners in the Arizona League, batting 246 Think about this by the way. Mm-hmm. The Mariners had contract rights to him, Griffey, at the same time. That would have been a phenomenal 3 yeah. 4 or 4 5 duo.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but he hit 246 in the Arizona League with two home runs, 20 ribbies. and 95 in previous numbers to 3 32s, 37 rubies, and 96 he was promoted to. Single so like, he had to pay his dues to get up in the mix.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, even, even without that, he got traded to the Twins as the player to be named later.
2: <laughs> oh, man.
1: A Hall of Famer was the player to be traded, to be named later.
2: How often does that happen? Not very often. I
1: forget. There's somebody else in the Hall of Fame that got traded for a bag of baseballs. I forget who it is.
2: For a bag of baseballs.
1: Yeah, for a bag of balls, somebody got traded.
2: Shoot, I don't know.
1: I forget who it is.
2: Well, if you remember, tell me later. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but he um, went through the Fort Myers Miracle and then Double A um, New Britain Rock Cats, which don't exist anymore. Triple um, A Salt Lake Buzz, which are the uh, Salt, um, Salt Lake. Um, they had different guy I played softball.
2: Salt, Salt Lake Bees. Yeah. Yeah.
1: A guy I played college ball with them. They're not even the Twins organization anymore. Nope. Um, what they're at, um, Anaheim,
2: Anaheim, yeah. Buddy
1: of mine, Tyler Carpenter, I play with at Columbus State, um, went through that system to get there. Right,
2: Rocket City. They go to Salt Lake for Triple A. Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: Yeah, and um, no man, like Poppy. What do you got to add to Pop- Poppy, man? He's he's the dude. All he does is hit for power and long balls. And...
2: Speaking of long balls in his minor league career, in 1996 when he was playing for the Wisconsin Timber Rattlers on July 29th that year and this is mentioned in the SB Nation's Epic Seattle Mariners documentary they the the apparent CL Mariners came to Appleton Wisconsin in the middle of a in the middle of the season to they were going to play an exhibition game but the rain kind of screwed that up so they decided that they were going to do a home run derby between like the, the Mariners and the uh, Wisconsin Timber Rattlers. They were going to do a three-on-three home run derby in which the Timber Rattlers first baseman, which was David Ortiz, stole the show. But man, I mean, they... <laughs> he just kicked everybody. He just impressed everybody. There's actually, like... I think there's footage of this somewhere. Like, I think I saw on Instagram, but, you know, he just picked up the bat, and he's just hitting them all over the place, you know. He just, uh, he just impressed everybody, and man, you know, after doing that, and then letting the the Mariners, let him go to the Twins organization, you know, that's what... (laughs) I think in retrospect, the Mariners would say, man, we shouldn't have let Big Poppy go. It, would you agree with that, Patrick?
1: Oh, they. Imagine right around the same time they could have had the rights to Randy Johnson, mm-hmm. Big Poppy, and Griffin Jr. Imagine if they'd been able to keep those three together for a good four year, five year period. And don't forget Edgar Martinez. Oh, Edgar Martinez. Um, John yeah. Ulruz at John first Ulruh. base with his helmet. Man, yeah.
2: Like Can you imagine if the Mariners had...
1: H-R-O on the tail end of that, possibly?
2: Yeah, or A-Rod too, but... <laughs> but
1: yeah, man, that that could have been a wagon, bro. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, at the time, Mariners thought, well, just trade him. What's it going to hurt? And well, I would say that's a trade that came back and bit him in the butt.
1: Oh, 1,000%.
2: Yeah. But then he ends up with the Twins. You know, he's doing good with the Twins. you have anything to add? I mean, let's...
1: I mean he lined up with the Twins, but the Twins weren't happy with him either. He didn't really come out of his shell until he got to the dang Boston Red
2: Sox. And that's where everything changes.
1: But no, they definitely lost out by allowing him to end up as a Red Sox. Um, because he he was... He is... As much as um, Yastrzemski you know, and people like that are Red Sox.
2: Yeah, he is.
1: He is. His face is iconic as the Red Sox. That man is not going to have to pay for a beer in Boston for the rest of his damn life. <laughs> you know.
2: Yeah, he.
1: He could drive his car 170 miles an hour down the interstate in Boston, and those like, oh, what's up, Poppy?
2: Yeah. You know. He is a. He was a game changer. Just. It, Instrumental in breaking the curse of the Bambino in 2004. Instrumental. And, instrumental. And then doing it again in 2007 and 2013.
1: And Kevin Lamar doesn't get the credit he deserves for 2004, but Poppy was the backbone of that team for what? A good 10 year run of competitive baseball.
2: Yeah. Just, he's great, man. I mean, great personality, always smiling. Joking, maybe not as much as Manny Ramirez, who you know Manny's crazy, but just joking, jovial guy. Oh,
1: that's just Manny being Manny. Yeah, did that end up with the saying. That's goes? Manny
2: being Manny. Yeah. Now he did get into some.
1: This is what I was wanting to bring up. You're why talking don't you? About the, uh, yeah. Steroid.
2: Yeah. Why don't you do that? Yeah.
1: So. um, He allegedly, uh, and even Wikipedia. And even Baseball Reference both say alleged positive PED test in 2003. Um, In in July of 2009, the New York Times cited a non-source that he was among a group of over 100 Major League players on a list compiled by investigators that tested positive for PEDs during a Major League Baseball survey conducted in spring training. Hmm. And it was agreed by MLB and MLBPA which relates a lot to what we're doing right now, mm-hmm. as far as baseball goes. And um, and this is before testing was a thing. It was kind of trying to get a handle on the steroids from what I put together of it. And um, yeah, uh, he got he, he tested positive on tests, but it was not illegal yet. Nope. Yep. He has never failed a test while it was outlawed in baseball. There you go. Neither has Barry Bonds
2: Or Roger Clemens. Or Roger Clemens. Yeah.
1: And that's where we get into our... Right. You now, off the record, or off the tape stuff that we, me and Matthew, discuss.
2: Oh, man. and But,
1: and, and that's why I'm kind of surprised. Like, if Poppy wasn't so lovable after that, there's no chance he'd been in the whole thing.
2: Right. It's all about... Because Pop-
1: Clemens and Bonds were on the same thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But you look
1: at Barry, it's kinda obvious. Clemens not as much.
2: Why would you need but it's like it's a question, why would you need steroids if you're a pitcher?
1: If everybody's doing it, I'd be doing it too.
2: Yeah, I mean you're looking for an edge. Everybody's looking for an edge. If
1: everybody's doing it though, at that point in time, everybody's doing it. Mm -hmm. You're gonna get left behind if you're not doing it.
2: Very true. Yeah, that's how
1: I view it. That's my (laughs) personal opinion. For those of you at home, I'm not condoning steroids. But,
2: um, yeah, but um, and then suddenly after his career, big Poppy got shot, yeah, but he uh, survived that, a year and a half ago. yeah, he survived it, obviously, that was just like, wow, I couldn't, <laughs> that blew my mind when he that happened, I was like, he, wow, who who would shoot who would shoot, big poppy, you know
1: somebody, in, he, he was he was back home, when it happened, so it was somebody was trying to get money on him or something, probably. But no, man, Big poppy, man. So many iconic moments.
2: Mm-hmm. One of my favorite, but when he got, when he got the phone call that he got inducted, Pedro Martinez was there.
1: Oh, they, they set him up for that. Yeah,
2: along with the family, of course. But still, that was awesome. I was like, yeah, Pedro. But, you know, he's supporting his fellow Dominican, his fellow Red Sox teammate. You know, can't and Pedro, I love Pedro, man. You know, it's Pedro.
1: Arguably top five pitcher to ever throw a baseball.
2: For sure. You know, one of the best. Possibly but, a future episode. You know. Now, David Ortiz, Big Papi, he was the... He was the only person on this year's ballot for the baseball writers to be elected. He's the only one got 75% or above. Everybody else, Clemens, Bonds, Schilling... They didn't get in. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't agree with it. Yeah. And then, you know, so now all those guys' fates, well, Clemens, Bond, Schilling, they're, now their fates are up to the various veterans committees.
1: I think they'll all end up getting in at some point.
2: They'll probably get in before Pete Rose does.
1: Oh, Pete Rose will never get in. No. And it's a travesty.
2: Yeah. I mean, even like, Hank Aaron said, like I mentioned this before, even Hank Aaron said in an interview before he died, he's like, oh, the steroids, the guys who did steroids will get in the Hall before Pete Rose does. I mean, like, just, you know. It's a tragedy, Right. uh, Willie Mays, I feel bad for Willie Mays because Barry Bonds is his godson, and Willie Mays wants him in the Hall of Fame. He said that multiple times, even when the Giants retired Barry Bonds' number in 2018. William Mays gave a passionate speech like get this guy in the Hall of Fame and I'm like yeah but you know the baseball writers are just like who cares
1: <laughs> it's going to take a turnover in people that are our age yeah to get some of these guys
0: in
2: right because the guys who are older who have personal vendetta who, I'm sure some have personal vendettas against some of these guys you know they're not gonna get them in, so it has to be like from our generation that will try to get them in. They got you have somebody who has to have an advocate. That's the only way you're getting in the, in the Hall of Fame from the Veterans Committee. If you have an advocate that really pushes your your candidacy, like Tony Larissa did to Harold Baines, or uh, Robert Yount and Bud Sela did for Ted Simmons.
1: Did children cover yours. Who's the dickhead that sold his vote to Deadspin? Um he has a show on ESPN or he's got kids got fired by ESPN. Uh, they had him and his dad. Um Levitar.
2: Oh, Dan Levitard, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, like crap like that is what like stuff like that. What yeah. the
2: hell? Yeah, I mean and Rob it, like, he had a heated well Levitard had a heated uh, discussion with Rob Manfred a few years ago. Like on the well, show. I would
1: love to sit Ron Manfred down right here, right now, me and you and him.
2: Oh, he wouldn't do it. <laughs> he, like, he cares about some hicks from Huntsville, Alabama.
1: Well, uh, we ain't hicks. No. But, um, he probably thinks we're from Alabama. Yeah. But, um, no, he wouldn't do it because he's afraid of being exposed.
2: Right. He doesn't, you know, he has, he's just, he's ridiculous. But, you know, it's, I liked how, uh, Roger Strowman referred to him as man clown. That was funny. I love it.
1: But <laughs> well, hell, man? I had a good time covering this uh, new Hall of Fame class with you.
2: Right. So congratulations to all the inductees this year. Well We're going to have a man
1: clown episode uh, here about uh, commissioner lockouts and things like that soon. Yeah. There's well, only two or three of them I can think of.
2: 72, 81, 94.
1: So uh, it is topical. That'll probably be the next episode, guys. Um, yeah. I think that'll be a good one. But... um. We appreciate you hanging out with us and um, listening to us talk about all the new Hall of Famers.
2: Yeah, maybe you guys learned some...
1: And Poppy, I trust.
2: Yeah, and maybe some of you guys learned some info about the older guys that you may not have known. So, that's a I plus. I hope y'all
1: learn as much about this as I am.
2: Right, and of course, y'all can you know do your own research and read up about all these players. And Of course, there's lots of video of Buck O'Neill talking about the Negro Leagues on YouTube, so you can check that out. But, yeah.
1: And, um we'd really appreciate it if you liked, rated, and subscribed to us on all of your platforms. Um, Apple, Spotify, whatever Russell Weichel listens on. He loves to complain at me about not missing his platform. I forget what it's called.
2: Overlord? I don't know.
1: O- Overlord? Overwatch, or something overbearing. No, I just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, uh. and, um, if you have any, any ideas of something you want to talk, reach out to us baseballhis101 at gmail.com. And um, I guess until next time, I'm Patrick,
2: and I'm Matthew Carter.
0: The whiz kids had won it, Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn, so down on the corner the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball, Klazowski, Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, Casey was winning, Hank Aaron was beginning, one Robbie going out, one coming in. Kiner and Mitch at the Thumper and Mel Parnell, and Ike was the only one winning down in Washington. I'm talking, hey. Baseball. Klazowski, Campanella Talking baseball The man and Bobby Feller The scooter, the barber And the Duke They knew them all From Boston to Dubuque Especially Willie Mickey and the Duke Now my old friend The bachelor Well he swore he was The Oklahoma and Cookie played hooky To go and see the Duke And me, I always love Willie May Those were the days Well, now it's the 80s And Brett is the greatest And Bobby Bonds can play for everyone Roses at the vet Rusty again as a Met, and the great Alexander is pitching again in Washington. I'm talking baseball, like Reggie, Queen and Berry, talking baseball. Carew and Gaylord Perry, Seaver, Garvey, Schmidt, and by the Blue. If town is calling, it's no fluke. They'll be with Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Say hey, say hey, say hey It was willing Nikki, and the Duke Say hey say hey say hey I'm talking with